So this morning I want to uh, continue the theme that I introduced last week, which is that of the relationship of inner and outer. Another way to say this is to say that I believe the entirety of our spiritual practice can be understood and organized in a simple way as having to do with two kinds of practices or two kinds of explorations. On the one hand, we look into where there's a more contracted or limited sense of self. And particularly in Buddhist tradition, we look at that sense of a separate, independent self. And we see the connections between the sense of contraction with uh, suffering, often with our areas of uh, woundedness. And we study that. We have to know, to, to a certain extent, where our contracted areas are. We have to know our suffering. We don't always go there first. Sometimes we need to go to more beautiful places first to get the resources to go into our suffering. And we don't need necessarily to go into suffering, as it were, ad nauseum. (laughs) That's a Latin phrase that means to the point of nausea. (laughs) And I don't believe we necessarily need to go into our suffering as much as people sometimes do, for example, in psychological work. Uh, I think we need to go into our our, um, more limited and contracted ways of being enough to know them really well so that we can, when they come up, we can know them and see them and, um, and shift and ask the question, do I want to go down that road again? But we have to know them very well to do that. So uh, on the one hand, we look into how we uh, have especially that sense of separate self. could be uh, a sense of being separate from others, separate from the world, maybe a sense of being a stranger or isolated, which is sometimes present for us. And it can also be, in a way, separate from parts of ourselves. So that sense of separation can be internal as well as external. And we bring attention to that sense of um, separation. We study it. And over time, we learn how to deconstruct it. The second movement is that of having a more interconnected sense of experience. We could say, possibly, uh, a more interconnected sense of self or a more relational sense of self. We can use the word self to describe both the contraction and the expansion. I think that's really a matter of definition. Uh, It doesn't matter so much. And we can get confused about that because in Buddhist practice, there's often a critique of the self or a teaching, as we explored last time, of what's called not-self. And that can make us, uh, that can lead uh, almost uh, invariably 
to intellectual confusion about what's being talked about. And I'll, I'll, I'll say more about that. But I think that it's really that teaching, as I'm interpreting it, is about the limits of a particular way of uh, understanding and interpreting self as being separate, independent, and um, opposed to uh, others and to the world in a rigid way. And that's what's being questioned. As I mentioned last time, the Buddha also talks at times about the, uh, what we could almost talk about as the expansive self. He uses language, actually, at times, not as frequently as he talks about not-self. He, used language, he, he uses language like maha-atta, the great self. Same word is used uh, for Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma means great soul or great self. And so I think there is that sense, even in that teaching of not-self, of the limited, contracted sense of self on the one hand and the expansive great self on the other. And so this is, I believe, one simple way to look at our practice. There are a number of ways that we might look at spiritual practice. We have models of the four truths, the nature and roots of suffering, the nature and roots of freedom. That's another model. This, you know, and they're interrelated. This is a very simple one. On the one hand, we look into our places of contraction. On the other hand, we look how to deconstruct that limited or contracted sense of self and move to a more expansive sense of self, in which there's an exploration of interconnection and interdependence. And what's being suggested is suffering tends to be connected with the first, and freedom and a lot of our most um, esteemed qualities connected with the second. Freedom, love, compassion, the wisdom of understanding interdependence, all of those seem to be connected with this more expansive way of being. So that's what I want to explore more, um, both by some um, exploration of what those two approaches mean or those two ways of being look like. But also I want to do uh, a number or give a number of exercises because I think that it's one thing to understand more at the level of uh, words and even a more intellectual sense these two teachings. But what we really need are ways to bring these two, uh, understanding of these two ways of practicing first looking and studying the separate self, the more contracted self, and secondly, deconstructing that separate self and opening to the more expansive self. I think we need to have everyday practices that we can do just in the flow of our meditation, the flow of our lives, that help us move in that direction. And I should say that this is a lifetime pursuit. We've had how many years or decades of conditioning to have a more uh, sense of self as more separate or contracted. You know, and if you choose to work with the model of multiple lives, it's more than just one lifetime of conditioning. In any case, it's a lot of years that we've had um, 
really, in a sense, supporting some of that, that more contracted or limited sense of self. And so we have to have patience, and it, we can sometimes, when we study this more, it can seem like a lot or even at times overwhelming. Oh my God, my limited separate self is just so strong. You know? You know? And I was, I was noticing uh, the last few days, I was very involved with doing, going way into details of my own finances in great detail, you know, playing with numbers and doing all this, and wow, so, nothing like that to bring out a sense of limited self. <laughs> so I was, I had been, you know, in, in working with this topic, it had been really catalyzing a lot of the expansive sense. I think I told you uh, last time that I was going around Berkeley just, you know, like for a number of hours, just sort of being there and doing a very simple practice like, is there a sense of opposition that I feel myself and the world or myself and another? And just that very simple practice of just, of just kind of tuning in. Am I creating an opposition? And I've been doing that and it was leading to these expansive states and then with the finances, I kind of, uh, I was necessary and I, I'm sure if I was more evolved, I could do that a little better and pr preserve the sense of expansiveness as I was going, you know, going through the, um, working with the calculator on the computer and so forth, but um, it felt a little contractive, and I was saying, oh, should I talk about this topic? I don't, I don't, but I got revved up, so. <laughs> so, but it's, but it's uh, this, that more limited or contracted state is, is uh, very familiar. So I want to talk a little bit more about that, and and I like to do a few exercises that, that you can take home. And we've already done quite a few. You know, in the meditation, we explored how to look for that sense of rigid or separate self in the context of meditation, to notice what that's connected with, to notice how we form a sense of self in subtle ways in the meditation, and particularly to look for where, as it were, the more separate self grabs hold of pleasant experiences and pushes away unpleasant experience, to look for the origin of self in part in the relationship to pleasure and pain. You know, I think that from a biological point of view, some of that sense of limited self or separate self has connection with survival needs you know, in the reptilian brain. <laughs> you know? And so it's not, it's not simply a delusion, but it's, it's a way of being that's not our birthright. We, I think we can take care of those survival needs, but not necessarily be reptiles. That's one way to say it. <laughs> but just to notice that the contraction can occur when those survival issues come up, and that's, that's important to see. Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, also looked at this kind of twin way of approaching the world. He has a book uh, which I brought in called I and Thou. How many of you have read this at some point in your lives? Yeah. That it's, it was written in 1923, and he says, it's right at the beginning of the book, uh, that there are two ways of being in the world. 
One is through the relationship of what he calls the I-it relation. There's a self and an it, an object. In that kind of relationship, only the self is important. The it is just there, as it were, for the I. That is the stance in which the world is only fit to be manipulated for my needs and has no inherent value in itself. We can see that that view is, is one of the bases for our ecological problems. And I want to say, partly in resonance with what Marty was saying at the end, that I believe that this issue of looking carefully at inner and outer is fundamental to really profound social change. And I think, and I was, I was just reflecting on this, also Joanna Macy has been a, a mentor, friend, and colleague, that she talks about three ways that change occurs, three main ways that, she says, the great turning towards a sustainable society has to occur. One of them is through stopping damage from happening further. A second is from uh, changing our core institutions, seeing the way our institutions are functioning and changing ones towards a more sustainable model. That, so that could take place in terms of agriculture or economics or education, medicine, and so forth. And the third is changing the very nature of our perception. And that's what we do when we look at inner and outer. So I think that even though there are dramatic ways that we can respond, let's say, to climate change, and there's definitely tons of work to be done on a policy level, and in a sense, that's very, very crucial. But what really will, as it were, support long-term change is also <clears throat> the inner work in which we change our very way of being with the world, in which we have a more interdependent sense. And so what's important is to see that all three of these are connected and necessary. And so the work that we do to shift towards a more interdependent sense of being in relation to self, in relation to others, in relationship to the natural world, and so forth, I believe is actually um, important. And it sometimes, is because it's gradual and sometimes low-key, it doesn't look as obviously necessary as, you know, I don't know, working out a, you know, policies on, uh, you know, supporting AB 32 or something in California, or the climate change or cha climate change laws, or you know, working out some massive way to respond. But I think it's this shift that is actually will actually make the real difference, and that's what each of us can do. And I think it has a um, tremendous effect when we bring that out into all the parts of our lives. So. I want to say that this attention to inner and outer and shifting more towards interdependence is deeply what the world needs. And again, it's not cut off from, from action particularly, but it is the kind of um, support structure that makes action more than simply um, an intellectual choice. You know, in other words, we need that 
we need that change in consciousness for this to really take root, if that does that make sense. So, so we study that sense of separation. We, we, and we have these practices like the study of the self at the end of the meditation, the practice that we did where we share each other's um, reports of people in need or, or expressions of gratitude, that is really, I think, a practice that cultivates an interdependence more in an interpersonal or community sense, you know, especially through the cultivation of the open heart and empathy. You know? So that, to me, is also a fundamental practice. You know? And there, for that practice that I was mentioning of just going around and saying, am I forming an opposition at this very moment? Can I open to more of a sense of interconnection? Is, is a uh, very, very basic practice. So we study that sense of separation. Buber said that we can go into this I-it relationship. We can also go into an I-thou relationship. We can, and both are part of human life. In the I-it relationship, the other has no real meaning or significance. It's really there to be manipulated for my ends. He said, in a sense, we only see that part of the other that's necessary for my needs. And so I may look at a tree and see lumber. And I don't see the entirety of the tree and I don't tune into the tree's life. I may see another person and only see obstacle. Buber said that when in relation to enemies, we can only have another person as an it by not seeing the totality of who they are. Very interesting. When we form enemies or opponents, we seize on some aspect of of them, but we don't really open to them as full subjects, as full people. Were we to do so, we would move more towards empathy. With true empathy, we can't really have opponents in the usual sense. So this this is also, as it were, an analysis and a strategy of conflict and how to work with conflict. So then we can move to also to that I-thou relationship where the other is more... Um, in relation with us. He said that the nature of the I-thou experience is that of relationship. And it's a relationship, as it were, between equals or between those who recognize a certain kind of uh, consciousness or in some traditions it would be called divinity within the other. And that's the basis for relationship. So how to do that? I actually realize I, I have so many notes here, I'm not going to get through hardly any of them, but I wanted to do these practices. Um, so I'll have to keep this for another time, because in, in preparing this, I was, I was reflecting that this could be a whole you know, year-long or multi-year <laughs> curriculum, because that sense of developing interconnection and I-thou, as I was reflecting on it, it naturally seemed to fall into four main categories. 
how do you develop a sense of interdependence within yourself? So we're not, as it were, having a separation between parts of myself and other parts of myself. It could also be, we could also look to how to cultivate that sense of interdependence in the natural world with the objects of the world alive and not alive, animate and inanimate objects. How do we have a different relationship there? We could also bring it to human beings. How do I have a sense of interdependence interpersonally? How do I have a sense of interdependence socially? And then we could bring it to the um, kind of the larger spiritual sense of the unity of things, that sense of interdependence. You know, um, that could, so this is I I, um, I named four or five different areas. This could be, you know, this could be a lifetime of work to give attention to these. And for each of those, there are different practices. I thought I'd mention some of the Chinese Hua Yen teachers, Buddhist teachers uh, and writers, had a very profound understanding of that last area. And I wanted just to read a short passage um, expressing total interdependence as a way of seeing things. This is from the Hua Yen tradition. They're the ones who have the model of Indra's net. Do you know, remember? Some of you know that model of Indra's net. Indra's net is, an, is a net which has a, uh, a kind of glistening jewel all over the net. And each jewel reflects every other jewel. And so you look at the net and everything is interdependent. They also had another image that the Hua Yen teachers used was the Hall of Mirrors where you look at one mirror and everything is reflected, all the other mirrors. So this is how one of the great teachers, I think from the ninth century, I may be wrong about that, Master Tu Shun said this, to summarize everything in four lines. Summary of interdependence. First, one includes all and enters all. Second, all includes one and enters one. Third, one includes one and enters one. Fourth, all includes all and enters all. They interpenetrate each other without any obstruction. This is a sense of how to look at things from, uh, I think, people who studied it um, quite a lot. So how to, how to practice that? Uh, what are some <clears throat> ways of practicing this exploration of the separate self and the exploration of what we might call the more um, expansive self. Um, We can look on the first, in the first kind of practice, we can look at where we notice that sense of self getting very strong. We can see that in our meditation. We can notice For example, when that sense of separation or a need to manipulate the world or a sense of opposition gets strong. Last time we discussed, for example, how we can look at that when we experience anger. And again, what I'm urging is very much a study. It's not so much, oh, I noticed opposition and separate self. Better get rid of that. Bad Donald. Bad Donald. Obsessed with financial details. 
you know. Um, so we have to really go into this with a kind of no shame, no blame attitude. I think that's true for meditation generally. It's quite, it's quite important. And we study where the self gets big. Where does it get big for me? Where do I have a sense of being uh, in an oppositional relationship? And we can study how much that may be connected with some kind of sense of survival or how much it's connected maybe with a sense of woundedness. Again, this isn't blaming. It's just to see what's there and to study it, to really know that. So one exercise I can do, and I'll invite this right now. We'll do one exercise. This is a very simple exercise that you can do and as a way to study um, both that sense of separation or contraction and expansiveness. I want you to think of a time that you have felt more separate or more contracted. You just bring to mind that experience or a set of experiences What happens to you internally when that occurs? And I'd like you to invite you, if you can, to start experiencing what happens at the level of your body, more somatically. And even, I'd like to invite you to exaggerate through your body what you're experiencing. And if you want to, you can stand up. So, for example, if I was in an opposition in which I was feeling angry and defensive and I was expressing it through my body, I would exaggerate some and I'd start getting into a defensive body posture, kind of protecting my heart, my chest, and I'm exaggerating now, which is very helpful for studying oneself. And I'd go into that posture now and just... It's almost like a, car- a little bit like a caricature because it's exaggerated. And just go into that right now. And you can, if you want to stand up or move, that's fine. If that's helpful. And just feel what that and bring to mind. And this is really expressing that sense of separation and contraction. And notice how your body feels, again, without judging, just trying to see what's there. Notice what parts of your body do what when you go into a contracted place. Again, it could be the chest, the shoulders, the head. Where is their tension? Just to study that. And now slowly, we'll move to a more expansive place. I'd like you to reflect, just for a moment, on a very more expansive feeling. It could be a very expansive feeling. And let that guide your body 
into an expansive expression. And again, if you want to stand up or raise your arms or do what you need to do, that's fine. Let this be more expansive in which you feel maybe connected with others, connected with the world. There is a locus of consciousness here, but there's also a sense of connection, non-separation, expansiveness and connection. And let your body go into that place. And again, notice the shift. Part of what's interesting about this sense of separation and expansion is that it actually has very clear bodily basis. And we can actually sometimes both use that understanding to see where we're contracted by, by tuning into the body, and we can also go to an expansive place, sometimes simply by moving the body. That's interesting. So let's stay in this expansive state and study it some. And if you wish, you can stay in this expansive place for the rest of your life. (laughs) Your option. And and then, again, you can stay there. See if you can preserve that sense of expansiveness even as we continue now. So that's a simple exercise that can be done. It's partly we need to really study that sense of separation. How does it occur in the body? What kind of thoughts are there? Where where do I go emotionally? What gets triggered? We study that. We have to, in a way, become experts related to our own contractive and separative tendencies. (coughs) And then we can also see how does it work to feel more expansive interconnection, interconnected. And we can do that very much in this way that's maybe more individual. We can also do that in relationship to um, the natural world and to, um, to even to bells or glasses and so forth and can really develop that sense of interconnection. Um, this is, I'll, I'll read one passage from Thich Nhat Hanh and then I think I'll do one or two exercises and then we ha- can have some discussion. This is from a wonderful book called The Sun, My Heart, which is, I think, one of the books where Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese teacher, went into most detail on interdependence. And I should say that in the book that I have at the back, I have a whole chapter on interdependence. It's been an important theme to explore. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh said, and he actually made a lot of use of the Chinese Hua Yen tradition, which is, that's the, the quote that I read was from that tradition. You know that this river of blood, he's talking about the human body, nourishes all the cells of your body and that your organs composed of cells enrich through the digestive system, <clears throat> purify through the liver and lungs, and propel through the heart, the blood. All the body's organs, including the nervous system and glands, rely on each other for existence. Lungs are necessary for blood, so lungs belong to blood. Blood is necessary to lungs, so blood belongs to lungs. In the same way, we can say lungs belong to heart, liver belongs to lungs, and so forth. And we see that every organ in the body implies the existence of all the others. 
This is called the interdependence of all things, or the interbeing in the Avatamsaka Sutra. Cause and effect are no longer perceived as linear, but as a net. So he's using that, that metaphor. As a net, not a two-dimensional one, but a system of countless nets interwoven in all directions in multidimensional space. So again, it's, you know, it's, this has a lot of resonance also with indigenous understandings of interdependence, which are fundamental. You know that I think in the um, uh, traditions where Nancy, the Nancy's working with, with the Lakota, there's that phrase, all my relations, is the beginning of a lot of prayers. What, what, do you know that in the original language? Yutakwiyasani. We, we do that in the sweat lodge with the help of, I don't always remember it. <laughs> so all my relations, that sense of interbeing. Not only do the organs contain in themselves the existence of all the other organs, but each cell contains in itself all the other cells. One is present in all, and all are present in each one. So you see, he's been reading those texts I was just reading. From. <laughs> this is expressed clearly in the Avastamsaka Sutra as one is all, all is one. When we fully grasp this, we are freed from the pitfall of thinking of one and many. A habit that has held us trapped for so long. When I say one cell contains in itself all the other cells, do not misunderstand me and think that there is some way that one cell's capacities can be stretched to fit all the others inside of it. I mean that the presence of one cell implies the presence of all the others since they cannot exist independently, separate of the others. A Vietnamese Zen teacher once said, if this speck of dust did not exist, the entire universe could not exist. Looking at a speck of dust, an awakened person sees the universe. You know, you remember that phrase from William Blake, uh, to see eternity in a grain of sand, from, from some of his early poems. And so that's being pointed to as, as it were, the awakened understanding. So how do we get there? <laughs> that's, you know, sounds great, nice poetry, because a lot of, I think it's not only sages, but also poets often point to that sense of interdependence. There's a beautiful poem by Baudelaire called Correspondences, where he talks about how all things interweave with each other. And I know when I was studying poetry a lot, um, I, I spent uh, several summers at Naropa in Colorado studying with Allen Ginsberg and other poets. And when I was studying it, I felt I was being trained to see the world through metaphors, which means that I was connecting everything with everything else. That's what metaphors do. And I would look at the world, and I felt like my eyes were shooting out metaphors. You know, like, is this connected with this? And some of it's creative, and some of it's observation. And so maybe one or two uh, exercises that can help, help us with this. And this is a, there's a set of exercises that I developed once with Julie Wester, who also teaches here. And we called it Being with Ordinary Objects. So here's, here's so I'll just do this for a few minutes. We had a series of four ways to develop uh, a sense of interdependence in a very ordinary way. So take an object that's near you. It could be, uh, could be the striker, it could be a piece of clothing that you're wearing, could be um, your cushion, your shawl, your pen. Part of, uh, uh, so these are four ways to develop a sense of interdependence. One of them is, I'll take the striker, one of them is simply to give attention. 
mostly in relation to objects, we take them for granted. You know, this, what is, this striker is only here for me to ring this bell. And I don't give it attention normally if I'm in that more separative mode. So just giving attention to an object or to another person, actually, one of my teachers once said, in the act of attention is love. And so just giving attention to a tree or to an object shifts something. So do that with your object just for 30 seconds or a minute. Not trying to make anything happen, just to be present. You can use your different senses, your sight, your touch, you know, smell your pen. In a moment I'll do the second exercise, but you can see how just this first sense of attention means that we somehow have to be out of our busy mode, right? The busy mode, in the busy mode, everything is there for me to use often. Not necessarily, but commonly, right? And so there's something about busyness which makes the sense of interdependence harder. So sometimes we have to look at, is there a way to change my busyness? Not so easy. So the second exercise is to cultivate a sense of the interdependent causality. So look at your object and imagine the different causes that brought this object into being. And some of this will involve your imagination. So if I would look at this striker, I might be able to see the tree that this came from and the people who, the people who cut down the tree and the model of the striker that comes from China from a thousand years ago and the way that it came here to Spirit Rock and so forth. And you use your imagination in part just to have a sense of the, in, the very complicated web of causality that brought this here. Just take a minute or two for that. A third practice is to be with this object, if this feels suitable, with an attitude of gratitude. It's to appreciate that this object is helpful for your life in some way. It could be as a pen or clothing. Much as in Zen, in Zen practice, one would bow to one's cushion. <laughs> you know, to recognize that this is helpful in some ways. The striker has has help, a pen. So just a very small moment of gratitude. 
or if there's some other emotion that's there. do the fourth practice. The fourth practice is to role-play your object. (laughs) So if that was the case, I would (laughs) have... And uh, you can do that later, but I wanted to make some time for for us talking together. But just to say that these are a sample of a lot of practices which help with cultivating a sense of interdependence. So if we think about it as both looking where we get contracted and then doing practices which help with that sense of um, expansive self. Every time you just listen to a friend, listen to your child, have that empathic sense towards another being, you're cultivating a sense of interdependence. When we listen to what people said at the end of the meditation, that's doing it. So we don't, don't necessarily need something dramatic, but it's can we in, have that intention to be cultivating interdependence and to see when we get more contracted. So it's very ordinary in a sense. We can do this practice a lot, or do, but it's, um, it takes that intention. So I'll invite us to um, comment on anything you noticed in doing those practices or ask a question or, or um, give a reflection. I realize I, I could work with this material. I have could have 10 or 20 exercises that could take many, many sessions, but maybe have to wait till November. <laughs> so any questions, reflections, observations, please. And let's, let's also say our name as we speak. Yeah. Hi, I'm Gabriella. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering when we were sitting in meditation and then you started to talk about the interdependence of this issue, and I... I got into a really stuck point because I was thinking in the meditation I'm totally thinking about my my breathing, my body, my sensations, Mm -hmm. my awareness, my experience of the people around me, and I just like how do you how do you transform that so it's not self? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, does our meditation seem like a self-centered effort to transform the self? Is that a fatal flaw? Should we all go home and we'll here at Spirit Rock, we'll go back to the drawing board and try to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but luckily, I think it's workable. So, um, so a few things. First of all, when you're being attentive to your breath, you're not actually, if you're following the instructions, thinking about the breath. And you're not thinking about it as my breath. And that's an, that's an important aspect of it. In, in other words, we're, we're developing attention that can simply be with the breath, be attentive. But we are not necessarily, we, we are actually in the process of mindfulness, we're removing some of what makes for a sense of separate self namely the thoughts and the, the opposition. As we, um, in, 
so in a way, somewhat paradoxically, we practice individually by ourselves, sometimes even in solitude, to cultivate a sense of interconnection. I think that's true. You know, it's very, very interesting. But one way to look at it is that there actually are, you know, when we look carefully, if we would look precisely at what are the elements that make for a sense of separation, we could actually identify a whole lot of elements. There are the thoughts, there's the somatic expression, there's the, um, maybe, the exclusive focus on this individual as opposed to others. Uh, There are a lot of elements. There's partly the consciousness which creates subject and object. So if I was being precise and having a longer session, I would identify ten different different supports for that sense of separation. We work with some of them, but not all of them, in being mindful of the breath. So we're not, so there's, it's possible to use meditation in a way which actually enhances a sense of selfishness. You know, it's possible to do that. Uh, sometimes called spiritual materialism, where, where the I, the separate self, appropriates meditation to become a good separate self meditator. Very common. You know, we, I mean, we all do this to some extent. It could be, you know, look at me, I'm a good meditator. And it's the story I told last week, remember, about um, some of the ways that I experienced that. So, you know, we can do it in our dress or our way of speaking and so forth. But the, um, in the act of mindfulness itself, there's not, there, if we're just being mindful of the breath, there's actually not a conscious self-reference. There's not the thinking about self. And um, we are, are actually training our minds individually to develop a kind of awareness which ultimately goes beyond that individual. So it really is a training context that we're looking at. And we're looking to ways to cultivate that sense of mindfulness. That mindfulness can actually get bigger. It, there are some limits when we just are with the self, and maybe that's what you're pointing to. But um, we have to develop that capacity simply to be mindful. And as we deepen our mindfulness, there may not we, we go through certain barriers. So, for example, I may just be able to be present with my breath, and sometimes it may feel like I'm being aware of my breath, right? But sometimes it can just be there's just the breath with awareness, and certain barriers have dropped away. And that, that can be, and sometimes there's no sense of that subject-object relationship. Other times in meditation, there can be a sense of just being aware of whatever comes in experience without a sense of a strong division between inner and outer. One of my early discoveries in meditation that was interesting for me was, oh, here I am sitting in awareness and I don't distinguish between an inner experience in my body and a a more outer-directed experience of hearing something outside or even seeing something, that in the cultivation of mindfulness, there isn't that inner-outer split. Everything is, a, everything is in the field of awareness, if that makes sense. That was interesting for me, to see that it didn't feel like I was strongly splitting off outer from inner, that they were more continuous in awareness. So as we practice more, 
that sense of interconnection can grow. So it's kind of a long answer, but it's a very interesting question. Does that help some? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. You're welcome. That's a challenging topic because, again, when we get busy, right? Okay. Just, you know, how is it possible to have a sense of interconnection completing one's to-do list? Yeah. <laughs> Please, and then Marty, and I think we'll, we'll finish just with these two questions and comments. Yeah. Um, my name is Hi. Um, I was just thinking more in terms of recognizing your own separateness. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was really a strong. It, it created a strong separation feeling. Yeah. Great. So yeah. It was helpful. Yeah. Because as soon as I find myself doing that, yeah. You know, when I was aware enough, um, I really, I sort of made this choice. Well, you don't really want to do that. You know, yeah. You don't want to separate yourself. So yeah. Want yourself back. Yeah. So great observations, Peg. There's a lot in what you just said. I mean, for one thing, it is important to study our thoughts. I, I listened to the recording from last time, and in the discussion time, you know, I said something like, uh, "Our thoughts tend to be self-centered," which is this kind of like, <laughs> "Duh," <laughs> and and that was interesting. That, uh, but it's something really to look at. And to, just to see that. Huh? And then if I don't think those same thoughts, or if I have looked at that enough and decided I don't want to go there, as, as you were doing, does, do I have the same sense of opposition? Or to what extent do our thoughts support and sustain that sense of opposition? So you can see why one of the main um, ways that we transform our being is by having a different attitude towards our thinking and by studying it closely. And in that process, a lot of our patterns and habits of thoughts do drop away. And there's also the the point that you made, which is quite important, that this is what I was saying about looking at our, our, we only have to look at our patterns well enough to know them, that we don't have to keep going into them, that at a certain point, you can see, oh, I'm being judgmental here. Do I want to do that? I think not. No, I think not. I won't go there, right? And then you go to a more expansive place. And that is a really fundamental aspect of our practice. We have to know the patterns well enough to recognize them. And then we can have a choice. Do I want to go there? No. And that's a really big part of our practice. Thanks. And so last, last point or question, Marty? I've been uh, grappling a little bit with what the distinction is between mind and awareness. Mm. Just because I've been doing some reading and, and also trying to mm. be aware of inner and outer and uh, this concept of awareness is just, it's, 
awareness outside of myself, awareness inside, where is the mind in relation to, to that? It's, can you just... <laughs> right at the end of our sessions, we always get the always get the two-hour questions. <laughs> uh, The words are used in different ways by different people. It's good to know that and not to get too hung up. Uh, intellectually, a lot of this, what we've been exploring, if you, if you don't connect it with practice and experience, can be quite confusing. That's what we explored last time. We, had, we looked a little bit more last time into the teaching of not-self. And you look at, you know, it's like, it get, gets confusing. So just to know not to worry too much initially about the intellectual way that everything lines up. Because, again, people use the words in very different ways. Um, and, you know, when we're looking to Buddhist traditions, a lot of the words, a lot of the word people use the words and they're in translation and they're always issues about translation. Um, that being said, um, I think we, we tend to use awareness as a very broad term. And we can use, um, the, I mean, the mind is used in, in a lot of different ways, um, but it's um, in, you know, in, in Western psychology, it would be used more to refer to mental aspects, thinking particularly, cognitive dimension. In Buddhist framework, it's used a little bit more broadly to mean the whole sphere of consciousness and awareness, which is different than how it's used in, in Western psychology so, um, and cognitive science. So it's, it's rather different there. Um, for the purposes of practice, what's helpful? Um, Study, you know, studying the mind, I think, is to study all the different aspects of experience. Uh, you know, and um, to study, so mind in Buddhist context is often used to be a synonym for mind and heart. So it includes the emotional, which it doesn't in the more Western context. So I would say just try to... Um, we sometimes use awareness as this exp more expansive quality. Like to hold things in awareness is one practice to move towards more expansion. Like to have everything be held in awareness can be an expansive practice. Some use the mind as a synonym for awareness. But mostly keep practicing. Thinking thinking is valuable uh, up to a certain point, but and again, I'm I'm constrained by the amount of time. I could I could say a lot more if I had ten minutes, but. Um,
Uh, well, I hope you're satisfied. It's continuing conversation, yes. right? Okay. So let's just sit to close for a minute and bring, if, if this sparked you in some way, and you're, you know, if, it, if that makes sense, that way of looking at our practice in this very simple way as involving both looking at where we get stuck, contracted, where there's suffering, a sense of separation, looking at that, studying that, not necessarily always about something dramatic, can be very ordinary. And on the other hand, opening up to more expansive states, whether it's with objects, other people, involving um, a sense of connection or love or compassion. That a second part of our practice is to move continually in that direction. And if that way of framing practice makes some sense, then you might just invite any intentions coming out of the morning about how this might inform your own life and practice and any intentions which are there. We end with another practice, which is called the Dedication of Merit, which is a traditional practice, which is also a practice to cultivate a sense of interdependence, and very much related to, um, to the earlier uh, question, that we remember that we're practicing not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer the fruits of our explorations and practice to all others in this hall, which we do through our participation, and then beyond the boundaries of this hall and indeed of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit and freedom of all beings. So thank you for these last two weeks.